Blog Talk Radio. to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will open the phone lines later on through the show so that you can call in and ask a question or make a comment. Well, joining me tonight is author Phyllis Lawson for a discussion of her book, Quilt of Souls. Quilt of Souls is a memoir that represents the author's childhood, her loving grandmother, and an old tattered quilt that tells the untold stories that have long since been hushed. Ms. Lawson completed her military career in 2013, and then prior to her completing 20 years of military service, she earned her Bachelor's of Arts degree from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Ms. Lawson is married with two sons and five granddaughters and currently reside in Florida. So let me give a warm welcome to Phyllis Lawson to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Phyllis. Thank you, Bernice. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so happy to have you, Phyllis, and I'm just looking forward to you sharing us some of the stories that you have written in Quilt of Souls. So let's start off with just a very simple question. What motivated you to write Quilt of Souls? Well, actually, Bernice, it was a combination of things. Um, All my life, hardly a day when I wasn't thinking about my grandmother and the stories she told about her life while growing up in Mississippi, you know, like her quilt making, specifically the concept behind her quilt of souls and how she used the clothing of the people who had passed on to make, you know, those beautiful quilts, you know, the quilts that made, that told 
you know, some truly amazing stories of those people whose clothing were embedded in the quilts that she made. And most of the stories that she told me was, you know, of these people often ended in tragedy. These tales that she spun was, you know, they they never really left my consciousness or of how significant she had or the significance that she had on my life. So when looking at the totality of it all, Bernice, Grandmother Lula was, she was an enigma, I would say. You know, I've never, mm-hmm. I've never met anyone like her, ever. So growing up, I remember watching and studying the way she went about her business, you know, the way she treated other people, folks who that were disliked, you know, abandoned and, and otherwise rejected by other people. Grandma, they always found their way to her front yard <laughs> and she took these people under her, her ring her under her under her wing and I would watch her as people would bring the clothes of their loved ones to grandmother to make make them their quilt of their quilt of souls and how she turned a bunch of old raggedy cloths clothes into something beautiful. And she never asked for a cent. She'd give and give and I wanted to capture these moments and put them in words and try and describe this beautiful woman. Um, so over the years, I knew that I was getting closer to putting all of these things into perspective, and I knew I wanted to write this book. I just could not just pinpoint how I was going to start it or end it, but I could feel something pushing me in this direction. So I would sit around my friends and talk about these stories. I, procrast- <laughs> I procrastinated mm-hmm. about it, but I never forgot about it. So basically, mm-hmm. that's the evolution of Quilt of Souls. Okay, and and how long did it take you to uh, put the book together? From start to finish, including the editing, which took the editing itself took about three or four months. So I would say close to two years to finish. Close it to from, two from years. Beginning to end. Right, and just tell me because I'm looking at your book and I'm looking at this cover. Is that the quilt? Yes, yes, that is the quilt. Oh wow, and you know. Uh, it's it's just when I when I read the book, I I thought that you know many people may be intimidated by writing and and just sharing personal aspects of their lives. So how did you decide to share the many intimate stories that you relate to the reader in Quilt of Souls? Well, um, once you start writing, and you really start putting out the information that you really want to tell. And if you don't put those intimate pieces in, you're going to have gaps in your story. So either you're going to do one or two things, either you're going to you're going to do some serious embellishments or you're going to just come to the realization that I just I have to even though painful as it is, I have to um be true to myself and write this story. You know, and I didn't want to cheat grandmother my grandmother Lula in any way. So I had to be mm-hmm. true to myself and tell the story the way it actually happened, you know, even the painful parts, because some parts of it, you know, even remembering some of my grandmother's stories that she told of her sister, that that was very painful. And, you know, a lot of times you want to skim over it to, you know, kind of because you don't really want to deal with circling back and, and, and going over and rehashing those things. But I knew I had to tell the story the way my grandmother told it to me because anything anything different or anything um, different than, than that, I would I would really be doing a disservice to the book. So, yes, you know, it's yes. difficult, but you, you, have to, you have to do it, basically. You, you have to do it. And, and that's all about, you know, looking inside yourself, and saying, I, I need to do this, you know, because you want to be true to the book. 
You don't want to cheat your book. You don't want to cheat your book. That's right. And, you know, you mentioned that you were one of Grandma's other babies. So tell us more about being one of Grandma's other babies. Well, during that era in the in the 1950s, um, and that, that was the, that was the era of the of the migration where a lot of blacks left the South and came north, and you know, in search of better social and economic opportunities. And a lot of times they would get north, and you know, they you'd run into different financial financial problems, and sometimes, you know, you would send a child or two down south, you know, and where are you going? Oh, I'm sending you down to your, your grand your grandparents' house, house down south, you know, until we can get ourselves together. But there really, in my, in my circumstance, there wasn't an a explanation. I was very young, too, and, you know, I was four. So I went down south. My, my parents sent me down south to live with my grandmother. So, And I just coined this phrase, grandma's other babies, because living down south, you know, there was really no neighbors, and I really didn't grow up with any other kids, you know, because we lived way out in the country. But there were other kids, when I did start the school and we had to walk three or four miles, you know, it seemed like every other kid there, or at least 80% of the children who went to that little small school they were being raised by their grandparents. I thought I was the only one, but once you get to talking to people, you know, and especially the other kids, I found out that I wasn't alone, and these were also grandma's other babies. So that's why I turned that, uh, coined that phrase, grandma's other babies, because these were the grandmothers or the grandparents that raised their children's children. Right, and and you even have grandparents doing it today. So I, so I would like to say this is a show dedicated to those grandparents that are raising those other babies. How about that? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So set us up, because you said something about the north and then going south. So where is this story taking place and during what time period? Uh, this was in the early 50s. I, I, I would say mid-50s. 1957 was the year that that I was sent down south, and it was a little town in Livingston, Alabama, and Livingston on the map is kind of uh, is right there near the Mississippi border, so it's what people would would term as way down south. <laughs> so and okay. it, was, it was very rural. We had no running water. We had no inside toilet facilities. We took our bath in in big silver tub that that we that was from the rain basically rainwater. So it was it was very rural. It was very very rural. My grandparents grew everything. They didn't buy barely anything from the store. So um it was it was it was very different. It was very different. Um but it was it was well, south and it was and it was rural. Yeah, well you have somebody saying, Wow, my peeps is from Bullock County, <laughs> southeast port. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of that. <laughs> I've heard of Bullock County. <laughs> right. So you begin uh, uh, with an interesting description from the city to the country, looking back. As a four-year-old, how did it feel to you? Well, you know, they, I, there are little slivers of uh, little slivers of memory. You know, of course, I couldn't remember everything. You know, then when you throw the trauma in, you know, you have a tendency to forget a lot. So the lo- the bigger things I did remember, like getting into this big black car and it driving away and all these big people, 
that were in there. And so when I discuss that in the book, I'm looking at the vastness of of of, of my circumstances because I was just surrounded by, by these big people, and I was a little something sitting in the back seat with these big people. And, I, you know, so I remember those slivers of things, like, like I mentioned in the book, how I get on my knees and look out the back, and all I see is smoke, you know, behind me, you know, and I knew that I was in for a whole different circumstances because the concrete roads just disappeared and were replaced by dirt roads. And, and um, so it felt very different. And then, and I will always remember the smell of my grandmother when I met her. I remember her eyes. And, you know, it's certain things I remember about her, and she was different than anybody I had ever met. I mean, just a very loving person, and um, and I was fearful. I was very fearful. And as I mentioned in the book, how all the big people drove away, and, and I felt alone, you know, until my grandmother just kind of like took me under her wings and showed me around. And, you know, and I cried a lot, And but that old quilt that she threw on me, <laughs> You know, that quilt that had personality that was missing so many pieces, we sat and we started sewing it together, and it was therapeutic. And um, those are my first memories about growing up with my grandmother and just how such an amazing woman she was because I, I can tell you all kind of stories <laughs> laying up under the house because she was she, my grandmother was definitely old school. You know, you couldn't sit around grown-ups, but the conversation – that she would have with the with the grown-ups out in the front yard. And, you know, I don't know whether a lot of people know this, but back in the country, you know, those type of houses set up off the ground. And I would just, once I got used to the chickens, I would crawl up under that house with them and just sit there and just listen. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, just, I would just listen to all the stories that they would tell, you know. And nobody knew I was under there, but that was my respite, I would say, so to speak. Yes, yes, and and Family Tree Girl is just writing. She was telling stories while she's making the quilt, or while right. she's quilting. Yes, yes. But yes. you are yes. well, well. Tell me something because you know I'm thinking here. You are writing about the experience of a four year old getting into a black car with all these big people. I mean, how deep did you have to dig just to bring up those memories and put them on a piece of paper? You know, it it was it was kind of difficult, but it was it, once I got over that hump of being 4 years old, it was almost like I was an adult, but I was writing from the eyes of that 4-year-old Phyllis and and growing, you know, four, five, six, seven, and I grew along with the story. So it was like it was me sitting on top of the house looking down like I was looking at a play, a view in a play, and just Mm -hmm. writing what I actually saw and felt, you know, and it was a lot of feelings that went into writing this story, and that's why people tell me, oh, wow, it was almost like I was right there because I was right there. (laughs) I was right there in the action. At all, mm-hmm. at all the time. So getting through those first those first couple of years with my grandmother, and, you know, I like, as I stated in the book, you know, um, how some kids learned, you know, back in those days it was learning the story of the Three Little Pigs and Little Red Riding Hood. And they said, how did you remember those stories? It's the same way that I memorized those, those stories. 
Yes, because the grandmother yes. stories were a lot more interesting than the three little pigs and little red riding hood could ever be. <laughs> oh <laughs> yes, grown-up stories, and I, you know, and I look back as I look back in retrospect, I, I wonder. I said, "Why did grandmother? I'm a little girl. Why did she tell me these adult stories?" <laughs> and I was so young, but she must have seen something in me that I didn't see in myself, and she knew. Mm-hmm. That she was that she would tell me these stories and somehow I would remember it. Remember, you know, and old people back in those days would tell. Well, especially my grandmother. She not only she told a story once or twice, but if I did something, she would repeat the story of Ella, or she would repeat the story of Blue Stockings. She was always repeating the stories, and and it was always attached to something that I had done or I was getting ready to do. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would hear these same stories over and over again. The story of Moses, you know, she would compare it to something that I've done, and she would sit down and she would repeat the same story. I knew the story so well. And the only unfortunate part is the stories that that I didn't put in the book, and and I wish I had paid a little more attention. But I plan on writing a a second book. So there's a lot of stories that I left out, but I wanted to get a lot of them out, you know, as, as, as... you know, as I was thinking about them, so. Yes. Well, I'm going to move back and forth from the process of writing to the actual book. Now, I noticed in, in the beginning of your book you mentioned uh, a writer's group. So right. tell us uh, how did this writer's group or writer's workshop help you get started with writing Quilt of Souls? Well, when when I started, I, I um, it was a writer's group, and it was in Florida, and I filled out my application online to go to this writer's group because they had some major authors there, give you know, critiquing. So I um, I sent all my information to them, but one of the criteria is that you would have you would have to bring the first three chapters with you. You would have to have at least wrote three chapters of this book or this potential book that you were writing. So I wrote my, I, I sent my three chapters in, and so the writers group it began as. It was an all-day group, and it began as a critique where we critiqued each other. The instructor critiqued us, and then the, uh, the people, the seven people that was in my group, critiqued each other's three chapters. And from then on, we after the uh, workshop had ended, we promised to stay in touch with each other and send each other a chapter every every week, so uh, every Sunday to critique, you know, and kind of pushies and move each other's for move each other forward because everybody procrastinates when it comes to writing you know and some of the people that was in the group had kids and and different stations in their in their lives so we kind of we critiqued each other and we touched base with each other every sunday and kind of moved each other along a path i finished you know i went actually when i started the group i had pretty much finished my book so i was ahead of everybody else but it's good to have that support behind you, you know, somebody yes. who's going to be honest with you and tell you, no, you need to do this or no, you did, you know, you need to do that. Um, I had several editors, actually, um, before my current editor um, that I had that, that finished this book with me, and she was she was awesome. I mean, um, and I, I think even more so than a writer's group is having a, a, a great editor. And I had one of the great ones, you know, and I was, I'm blessed to have Leslie uh, because she was, she was awesome. I mean, we would stay on the phone for 12, 13 hours a day just editing, you know. She, she, 
she took it personal, you know, because she fell in love with Grandma Lula. And it's good when you have an editor who really oh. liked your work. So. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, we have comments coming out of the chat room. Uh, One comment from Angela, I like the idea of a writer's group. And then another comment is, that's what I need. That would get me to writing my books. Uh, So you said Grandma Lula. So why don't you describe for us Grandma Lula? Just tell us all about her. Well, she was she was born in Mississippi in a place called Sandersonville, Mississippi, Sandersville, Mississippi, and is very close to Hattiesburg and Laurel. And so she was born there, and she was born in 1883. Um, and she was she was a very like I said in the beginning she was a very different type of person. She was she was a giver. You know, I would. I would wonder to myself, why is this woman giving away her quilts, you know, giving away her cakes, giving her away her tea cakes, giving away her food, her jellies, whatever we made, people would come and, and say, Miss Lula, I, you know, I want to pay you for that. And she said, no, no. <laughs> and I would ask her why she give her, 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 um, her stuff away. And she would tell me about kindness, how you have to be kind. You know, it's not always about paying. She taught me a lot of life lessons. She was her her parents were both slaves. She uh, my grandmother came along when her mother thought she would never have any more kids because her mother's her mother's um, all her mother's children, with the exception of of Ella, my my grandmother's oldest sister, were was sold in slavery. So my grandmother's mother, Emma, had pretty much had given up on having kids. And, you know, without giving the book away, her family, Lula's family, the little family that she did have, her mother and her father and her sister Ella, they all passed away in a tragic sort of way. So Lula was the only person left in her lineage. So her lineage lineage was shattered. You know, there was no no connection to her, her past. You know, mm-hmm. the only lineage mm-hmm. she have is her her children, and so that's why it's so important for me to try and find her lineage and where that lineage was broken. But she she moved to Livingston after meeting my grandfather, Livingston, Alabama, and you know we she was <laughs> she was a quilt maker. Her mother made quilts, and as I I stated in one of my chapters, how that bloodline flows with Native American blood, you know, Choctaw. Her mother was Choctaw, and her father was African, and evidently they both were lived on the plantation. And after the African, my great-grandfather was um, met my great-great-grandmother. They were, after having Emma, they were kicked off the plantation and sold to um, a plantation owner. So Lula was, is Lula, my grandmother's mother, Emma was was half Native American or Choctaw Indian, and, and Grandmother tell me about those stories and the quilt making and how it transcends that Native American and African heritage, you know, with the quilt making. You know, the quilts, you know, especially when you talk about quilt of souls and yes. the body and, and the death, you know, is, is my grandmother, she, she was adamant. She would never mix new cloth and the cloth, and the clothes of people who had died. She would never mix them in the same quilt. They had to be a pure quilt of souls. And she, and I would ask her, why would she, why do all the all the all the 
fabric in, in the quilt have to be from dead people because I would hear so much about dead people. And she said, because those those souls in that quilt protects you and keeps you from harm. And so I think that came from the Native American side of her. It's almost like a talisman. Um, but my grandmother, she was she was very unique. She was very unique. And she lived to be 103. You know, and I won't tell you the story about all the things and all the stories, yeah. but that was well, my grandmother. Well, thank you so much for sharing your fond memories of your grandmother and especially sharing with us about the quilts and why they were called Quilt of Souls because they were of deceased people. And it's just, you know, interesting to hear how your grandmother told you why you did not have the uh, fabric of someone still living. So with that, we're going to take a quick break and come back and continue to talk. And, folks, the line is open, so when you're ready to call in, I'll give you the call-in number. doesn't look like our our phone the music wants to play so we'll just keep on talking and you know we had some technical issues last week and look like we still may be having some of those issues but that's okay we'll just continue to talk and so let's go back to you and you mentioned you you have little sayings throughout your book and one of them you talk you talk about uncle Arthur and getting full of yourself and going high on your horse and slop jars. So why don't you kind of share with people just what are you talking about? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think those are some of the sayings that probably went back to to, uh, slavery, that that transpired in slavery, because I would ask my grandmother, uh, what does that mean? And she would say, uh, you know, she would <laughs> she would phrase it like, "You ask me no questions, I'll tell you no lies," and I would say, <laughs> "Well, okay, okay." You know, because she would a lot of times she would sing in her songs, and had, a lot of her songs didn't have words, and I would ask her, and she would respond with that same comment. You know, my grandmother had so many truisms that she would that she would put out put out there that you know, and I. Half of them I remembered, but it was the good ones, you know, trouble don't last always. You know, that was one of her favorite ones. Every time I would get down on myself or or something, she would just pull me aside and just say, child, trouble don't last always. You know, and I just, that that's one of her truisms that's just stuck with me over the years. And, you know, I remember when I first arrived down south, and, and I put this little piece in the book where <laughs> uh, she would, I would do something, and I wouldn't do it to the best of my ability. I would kind of like half do it, or 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 just kind of like make an effort to do it, and and just like carrying water, you know, bringing water to her and grand, grand my grandfather from 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 the spring, and I would spill some of it. And by the time I I I I I, I got to them, you know, half the water was missing from their mason jar, and she would say. Child, you have, you you barely have enough water here to feed the chickens. I guess you're just gonna have to go and lick the calf over, you know. And I say, Grandma, what does lick the calf over mean? You know, she, and she would say, Ask me no questions, and I'll tell you no lies. So it was, it, it, I, you know, I just loved those sayings. You know, I used to hate it back then, but 
now when I look back, it was just, you know, it, it was it was really, really some things that go way back in, you know, from ages ago. You know, so these things are evidently these, these sayings were passed down, you know, through her line. And, um, you know, and I, I cherish those sayings, you know, and I still use yeah. them. Yeah. Right. It was just interesting reading your book and hearing some of those sayings and kind of remember, wait a minute, I've heard that before. Yeah. So that is just how how the old people talk back there. Old That's people how talking. They talk. That's yes. You would just get right. on my grandfather, you know, tell him he's moving slow as molasses, and you know. And then I realized as I got older, I said, Oh wow, that's right. Molasses do run really, really slow when you pour it, you know, because it's so thick. You know, it's amazing how you put these little sayings together with reality as you get older because you can you can pour out molasses and it's and it's real and it's thick you know the the consistency is real thick and it and it and if you put it down it it, it runs really really slow you have to shake the bottle a few times so mm-hmm. i understand yeah and there's a comment coming out of the chat uh true is saying her mom will call anybody doing wrong a pot liquor Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I've heard that before, too. <laughs> a pot yes. liquor. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but pot liquor was the juice from greens that you crumbled cornbread into. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Angela. My grandpa right. didn't eat with, his, eat with his hands. He would, you know, we would put the cornbread in the in the juice and just use his hands, with, you know, with the greens. and You know, I, I don't think I've ever seen my grandfather use use a fork and a spoon to eat with. And I look back on those things and I say, wow, he never used a, a fork and spoon. Mm-hmm. Well, we are going to try to take a quick little break and come right back, okay? Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, you have been listening to author Phyllis Lawson recount stories in her book, Quilt of Souls. I have opened the phone line, 646-200-0491. 0491 and if you would like to ask a question or make a comment 
please call in. So, Phyllis, you mentioned finding that there were treasures in the house. So what kind of treasures did you locate, and were they forbidden treasures? Yes, they was, and it was basically the... the, I think my grandmother's hidden tea cakes was probably one of the most hidden gems in the whole entire house because she kept them locked up in in the old chiffre robe, and I was constantly trying to find a way of breaking in and and getting <laughs> and getting getting into her tea cakes because people would come looking you know for grandma's tea cakes and she would take out this big long silver key and go in and open up the top part of the chiffre robe and and take out a few and and um and give them tea cakes, and I just couldn't get enough of them. And, but she kept them under lock and key. And uh, during, on, I was just talking to my husband a little while ago, as a, uh, on a, taking lunch to school, and I would love to take those tea cakes. I couldn't wait for Monday to roll around because she would put a tea cake in my bag every day. And um, uh, I, we would take a old, I would take an old cold biscuit, and and with a piece of mystery meat in between in a in a paper brown paper bag every day along with the tea cake and no matter how greasy that bag got I would have to bring it back every single day until the end of the week <laughs> so <laughs> it was it was <laughs> that was just that was my grandmother she she really really um focused on the small things you know if you, yes. if you do small things then the large things will come later but just as 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 important as bringing back an old greasy lunch bag, that was important for her, you know. And and it you know it's, it's a life lesson to be learned in that. But as far as other treasures in the house, it was it was everything she kept, everything she treasured deeply, like old sentimental pieces. She kept in 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 old in this shiver robe. And I don't know, a lot of people probably don't know about shiver robes, but they're old cabinets um i guess 1800 late 1800 early 1900 it had to be that old because you know it was the mirror was cracked and the you know how the mirror gets so old it start you know it just start becoming discolored but she kept a lot of things old she had civil war coins and 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 dollars in there she had um she just had, you know, things that I guess a lot of us wouldn't think would really be valuable pieces, but it was valuable to her. Um, old pictures, you know, and I would love getting in there just looking at those things. And I was able to break in one time into her little treasure box, and um, she scared me so bad because she said the spirits would would, would be haunting me if I uh, if I come <laughs> if I come back in the room. If I come back in there, because she had my great grandparents, my grandfather's great parents' picture on the on the mantle, and she told me that the, that grand that Grandma Alice and Grandpa Josh would haunt me <laughs> if I come in the room. You know, people back in those days, those old people, they believed in spirits. They really did. I mean, you hear I hear heard more about dead people than I did about living people growing up with my grandparents. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a comment. I want you to know, Phyllis, there is a comment in the chat room. It's from one of your sons. And uh, what he has said is that many of the lessons that that you have learned uh, from your grandmother, you've also imparted it to him and his brother. 
and that their success as men is the result of your phenomenal parenting, that you're the best mom ever. Oh, I, I love him. I love him so much. That's 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 my son. <laughs> Please pass on. I, I, I love you, and I thank you for that because I tried to yes. be. Right, and you 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 have kind of that grandmother that grandmother wisdom, and you've written this in your book. But I also noticed that you you told some painful stories, and what what courage uh, did it take for you to just dig in and tell uh, uh, the story about Ella, your grandmother's sister? Just just share with us what what it was like to to recount. What happened to her? You know, as, as I was writing that story, I um, I had to go back in time and and kind of like look at my grandmother. I said, see, it visualize her face as she was telling me that story because I do believe that was the most painful story that she had to tell about her sister because you can tell she loved her sister very, very much, and to see her die like that the tragedy you know that happened in one night to her family was very painful and 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 to as she was telling that story i kind of absorbed that entire um her entire the, just sitting there writing it on paper for me i saw her as she was telling me that story and that's why the story is so profound and so prolific those those two chapters on Ella is because I actually visualized my grandmother and the pain that was on her face and I know it was painful for her in telling me this story. So I said, well, if my grandmother could tell this story, no matter how painful it was for her, I know I could tell it. And um, mm-hmm. I don't even think I did the justice that, that she did telling that story. As I put it, as I put it on paper, it was because it was a painful story to write because it was painful for her, and um, even being so young, when she told me this story, and as she told it over and over again, you know, bits and pieces, because she would never start from the beginning, because she would always say, "Are you listening to me? Are you listening to me?" So I know that she wanted me to retell this story. As I look back. Mm-hmm. This was very important for for me, and for me to hang on to the, the words that she was telling me about Ella, because mm-hmm. Ella was a very strong woman even during that time, and the abuse that she took. And Ella was born as a as what they say down south as a gifted child because she was born with a a veil over her neck, a, a veil a veil around her face when she was born. You know, and old country people believe that people who are born with veils over their faces, you know, possess certain gifts, magical and 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 spiritual gifts um, that other children don't have. And she claims that Ella had that gift, and she, Ella was strong. She was well-spoken, and she didn't back down. She was a very strong, courageous woman. And I think that Ella's strength is what carried me through over the years as well. So uh, it was a very painful story to tell, as well as a mm-hmm. few others. But Ella's story was, was, was a little bit more difficult. 
Right. You also uh, share a story of going into town with your grandfather and seeing the water fountains, the two water fountains, and I want you to tell us that story. Well, my, I never got out of the country except for on those certain Saturdays where um, my cousin Jeff would come and pick up my grandfather in his blue, old blue truck and we would go to town and I would be riding in the back of the truck. Um, but I remember the first time that I went, and we got in, we moved, went into town, and right on the outskirts, well, right actually, right in the middle of town, was the was the main courthouse square. And my grandfather gave me this lecture, and I'll never forget. He said that you do not drink, go over there and drink any water from that water fountain because I have this jar of ice water. That's why I brought a gal, because if you want something to drink, you drink from this <laughs> from this uh, jar. Now, please jar. tell the people, please tell the people exactly what was written on each water fountain. Oh, it was it was a colored and it was a white um, water fountain, and it was written in, in, in black lettering and with a white background, so you knew that, you know, which which water fountain to drink, but instead of my grandfather um, telling me if I needed to drink water, I, w- I should go to the colored water fountain. He didn't say that. He said, I don't want to catch you anywhere near that water fountain. If you want water, you're going to drink it right here from this big old mason jar that he brought in case I in case we got thir- thirsty because my grandfather wouldn't drink from from that fountain, you know. And later on. I, you know, I I really appreciate and respect what he did because he didn't he didn't stoop that low to to drink water from a fountain that was that was definitely segregated. Instead, he brought his own water, and 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 for, not only for him but for both of us because he refused to fall into that. He just wanted to make sure. I think he really wanted to make sure that I wouldn't have to um, face anything like that, too, because I was a pretty independent child because knowing me, I would say, well, that one's too dirty. I'm going to go to this one. So, And he and he probably knew that about me. So, um, mm-hmm. And I respect my grandfather for that. Yes, yes, indeed, yes, indeed. Now, you know, you, you talked about uh, the story of Ella that your grandmother shared with you, but what other stories did she share with you while she was piecing the quilt of souls? For other people, just give us some of your what you would say some of the best of the stories that you have shared in your book. I think one of you know one of my favorite stories were um, this was the story of of the of Cooter the laundress because I didn't know, and now I have a great appreciation for those women back then who washed clothes on their hands for. The white people in town, you know, and these women would wash clothes on their hands on scrub boards, make their water outside, boil the clothes, you know, and they would go and pick up these clothes from the, from in town. They would drive a wagon from the country, from the rural part of Livingston into town, pick up these clothes on Mondays and Wednesdays. The Mondays' clothes was due back on Tuesdays. The Wednesdays' clothes was due back on Friday. And the customers, they didn't care whether it was rain or it rained or it was it snowed or it was too hot or or 
they didn't care. All they wanted, they wanted to make sure they get their clothes on Wednesday and Friday. So sometimes my grandmother said these women would have to wash clothes and hang clothes all over the house under a roaring fire in the wintertime to get the clothes dry. And then they would take that iron, you know, not electricity, uh, iron that runs on electricity, but those old irons you put in the fire and they get hot. And they would iron these clothes, you know, until they were dry. And they would have to, to make sure that they would deliver these clothes when they were due because they would get really angry when their clothes wasn't there on time. So I had a great appreciation for for those laundress because you can Google laundresses and you're not going to find anything, you know. But this this was a a profession, I would say, back in those days that was these women were 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 are, are underrated even till today because they were hard working women. These women were putting mm-hmm. their kids through school. They were sending them off to college, you know, all because of this hard work, this hard manual labor, you know, and that was some difficult later labor because the, you know, a lot of these women, my grandmother said, had, had Uncle Ar- had Uncle Arthur, <laughs> which <laughs> yes. arthritis, you know, in their hands from washing outside, but they did it, you know, through the pain, through the misery, they just did it. They didn't complain. They just did it, and they did it on time, and they did a good job at it. So that was one of my favorite chapters, the Cuda chapter, and, of course, Daisy, um, that was another painful. <laughs> that was another painful chapter because because what Daisy had went through. Um, that was one of the people that my grandmother, one of the young women's young ladies, I should say, that my grandmother took under her wing. She was tossed away from from her family because she was a product of an interracial uh, relationship. And, and oh and yes, mm-hmm. was a black. Just pretty much later down in the black settlement and and just left her there. So. Daisy went through a lot. She, you know, went through so many different um, painful, trying times, and you know, until she ended up ended up in my grandmother's front yard. And she took my grandmother took care of Daisy. You know, not um, not in the way that you think, but I think she gave Daisy a lot of hope. She treated her like she was a person rather than just a piece of meat, and. Um, you know, and and she really appreciated that, and and uh, it turned her life around. But that was mm-hmm. my grandmother. She would take people who were needy, and who 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 people just, you know, who were the dregs of society, like they like they say. But and my grandmother didn't turn away anybody. But they all went to find Miss Lula in order to get that soothing and those and those strokes, you know. And um, I would yes. watch. And um, mm-hmm. my grandma, she was very different. I just can't say enough about her because she was a different type of lady. Well, how many of the quilts that your grandmother pieced together are still in existence today? Well, I have I have one which is my quilt of souls, and then I have the quilt that was that was on her the last time I seen her before she passed away. Because after the incident that happened, and um, I won't say what it is <laughs> because I don't want to be a spoiler, um, people brought her old old cloth to my Aunt Phyllis's house, and she pieced together a quilt, you know, before she died, and you know, until she got just too disabled because she was she was 104 when she died. So, but that was the quilt that was 
that was on her the last time I seen her before she passed. And so I have that quote as well. And she, she, the last time I seen her, she called it a prayer quilt. So I mm-hmm. have those two quilts of hers. And, and, and you know, the, they're old. And, you know, my quilt of souls is, you know, it's fraying some. But, you know, it's for me, it's, it's still in good condition. And uh, still just as warm as it was when I first got it. So, um, but I do have two of her quilts. Yes, and Phyllis, how uh, old is the Quilt of Souls, the the cover of your book? How old is that quilt? Well, well, Quilt of Souls has so many different pieces in it. The oldest piece is Ella's wedding dress, um, and that was, I would say that's like 1860, 1860, 60-ish. The other other materials, you have Cooter's uh, dresses in there, which is probably 1920, 1930, she have um, Hattie's son's shirts, I, you know, and I would say that's like 1920, 1910. So it's a wide range of, 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 of material that's in there that dates from, I would say, the 1850s to all the way up to the 19, to 1930, 1940. So it's a wide wow. mixture of different cloth in the, in the quilt. Wow. And the quilt is still, I mean, it's its not so fragile that you can't handle it? Oh, no, no, no. I take it, I, I when I go on my book tour, I'll, I'll be taking the quilt with me on the tour. So um, mm-hmm. it's, it's still in really good shape. It's very sturdy because you have to, have to know, Bernice, that my grandmother made stitch the quilt by hand so and have actual cotton from the cotton field in between the quilt. So that quilt is 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 much older than some of the some of the recent quilts that I've that I've had for the last ten or fifteen years, and it's it, it's hanging on a whole lot better. But it, to look at it, you can tell you know that it's very old, but it's also that very is, sturdy. Yes, yes, it yes. Well, I think that it's it would be wonderful to just see it in person, especially after reading Quilt of Souls and understanding just what each of those pieces meant when they were stitched into uh, a larger piece. So what advice would you give to others that are just thinking about writing a memoir, and, and what exactly would you say to them? I would say, like I said earlier, to you, you have to be true to yourself. You have to write it and be honest with yourself because if it's something about writing a memoir that you have to, you have to, you know, deal with the good things and you have to deal with the bad things, um, the things that's pleasant, the things that's not so pleasant. Because if you don't, it appears as though you have gaps in your story, you know, and it won't have that profound impact that it could have if you just lay it all on the line, you know, is mm-hmm. you have to be, you have to dig down deep into, you know, deep inside yourself to, to say, okay, how could I say this in a way without taking away from the story, you know, um, how could you say it so it may, you know, it may sound better, you know, to other people, but at the same time you're also being truthful and it's, it's what's really in your heart of what you want, what you really would like to say, and, you know, in mm-hmm. order to get your point across. You know, it's, it's hard to cut corners and it's hard to take shortcuts when you're, when you're writing a memoir. You know, and that's why 
when I wrote mine, I wanted to write it in a way that I would like to read it, you know, because I know how I, I love to read. But when I read things, sometimes I can read, I can buy a book and read it, and I can tell that, oh, wow, that person just didn't want to deal with that or that person just didn't want to put that out. You know, you can tell because of, mm-hmm. um, you know, it kind of like goes downhill and then it picks back up. But I wanted to keep everything on an even keel because I had a one lady told me um, after she read my book, and I didn't even know it until she had told me that. And I said, wow, I didn't know that. But she said my my book deals with so many different aspects, you know, emotional and social aspects, from 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 abandonment to abuse to homelessness. Um, it's, it deals with so many different aspects of life. I touched on, in, 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 in a small book like that, I touched on so many different things. And uh, I say, wow, that is, it's true. It's, it's you're absolutely right. right. And it is true. Know. You you did. You touched on so so many different aspects of life. And sometimes when people start writing, they only pick out the best right, of tales right. to share. And you you just go in in a lot of different directions. But it does flow, and it does take us through through your life and the many experiences that you've had. Also, uh, it's an opportunity to pick up what you're learning from your grandparents as well as from others. And I I have a quote in here, and this is from Miss Clay. And Miss Clay told you, Phyllis, you must walk straight ahead and never turn around to look at the footsteps. You walked in yesterday because those footsteps won't fit in your feet anymore. And you know when when the teacher tells you something like that, what what did it mean to you to turn around and put this back in this book? Because when she said it, she you know Miss Clay was she was she was my she was my mentor. So when she said it, you know it's you know a lot of people could say something and it just doesn't even though it's coming off your lips, you know, because I think Miss Clay was the person that said that, told me one time, the lips could say, the mouth could say anything, but, you know, if you say it and it's attached to the heart, it comes out differently. So when she told me that, it kind of like burned inside of me that, wow, that is really, that is really, really profound, and it and it stayed with me all of my life because it was the way she said it. You know, she looked me deep, deep in my eyes. It was almost like she knew what I was getting ready to go through, you know. And um, she wanted me to understand that and know it and feel it and practice it. And and I will always remember Miss Clay because she, she made, as educationally, educational-wise, she made me who I am today and wanted me, I mean, she, she instilled in me the need to not that thirst to always want more and better yourself. Even when I was going through all those different things, you know, Miss Clay was always there with her big hand, just lifting me up. And and um, mm-hmm. she, you know, she mm-hmm. she was very instrumental in my life. Right. Well, I just want to thank you so much for just sharing with us, quote of souls. 
and, you know, there's just conversation going back and forth about quilts and who has a quilt, and I certainly have my quilt, and, you know, you never think to just take a look at that quilt and then think about the stories that you could write from that quilt, and I and I like the way Quilt of Souls uh, has been written because it's also as an as inspiration to others. So thank you so much, Phyllis, for coming on and sharing with us Quilt of Souls, and I hope that others will will get your book so that they could just experience what you have just shared with us as you went through your journey from a four-year-old to an adult. So thank you so much for uh, coming on tonight and sharing your story. And everyone... I want, yes, I want you to please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives and beyond. And please, please tell your story. And we're going to have others coming on to continue to tell their stories. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond and the AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Phyllis, and thank you so much for joining the show.